Hello and welcome to the People and Flow podcast. This episode hears Neville Pritchard talk with our guest, Karima Mariama Arthur. Karima is a seasoned attorney, international keynote speaker, expert facilitator, complex communications consultant, and the author of Poised for Excellence. Hello, Karima. Hi, Neville. <laughs> How are you? I'm great. I am great. Oh, that's great. Karima, I've um, just finished reading your book uh, and I, I love it. I particularly love the title. It invokes, it invokes people to really want to read the book. How did you arrive at Poise for Excellence as a, as a title? Well, uh, that's, that's a really great question. And so when I was looking at sort of the posture of leadership, it occurred to me that it's sort of positioning really. And so being poised for excellence is really positioning yourself with the knowledge, skills, abilities, insight, mindset, and behaviors that put you in the best position to exude and execute excellently. So that's sort of how I came up with the name. Oh, I, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's superb. And I, I like the thought of the, you know, in poised for excellence doesn't just look at the knowledge, skills, and abilities, getting inside that mindset. What, what sort of, um, what can we look forward to in the book that relates to, to the kind of mindset of leadership and excellence? Mm-hmm. Well, I start off in the very first segment that has to do with really positioning the individual for that fundamental introspection. And there we delve deep into the kind of mindsets. We begin to introduce that in those principles and they also go into the paradigm shifts which also deal a lot more with mindset so there's kind of 20 chapters uh, in the first part of the book that take you all the way through that process and make sure that there's clarity that the way you begin to lead is you start from the inside out yeah yeah and and and, and the fact also that you put in there that you know you are your own barometer yes talk to me a little bit about that phrase yeah, I think I really think that that's something that leaders at every level really need to embrace because Neville, it can be so easy to get sidetracked, to become sort of wed to other people's best practices, their expectations, what they have really set out for you to do. And, and leaning on that, sometimes we forget that we can also be a good guide to ourselves. And so it also gives you, first of all, I think it helps you to rely on your competence, what you know you've been you know, ready for, the work you've put in, to really see the power and the magnitude behind that, but also to trust it. Because as a leader, you're of course leading yourself, but you're also leading people. And so if you don't have the confidence and the perspective to really trust that kind of insight that you're giving to other people, then I think somewhere along the way, people are gonna lack the confidence to follow your lead. And so being your own best barometer is really about, again, starting from the inside out and trusting yourself first but yeah. also giving you the posture so that other people can really rely on the advice that you give because they think and feel that you have the confidence to lead. Yeah, and, and, and if you don't trust yourself, how can anyone else trust you? And, and so it goes on. Yeah. Um, that, that, mm-hmm. that, that whole need to look inside, that resonates with the opening of, of, of um, a book we recently put out, uh, which is Go Beyond, which looks at it from a departmental perspective. Uh, again, where we said, 
you have to really understand yourself and what your influence is and the fact that you are uniquely different to others um, mm -hmm. at department level and the same applies to individuals and if you you know if you're poised for excellence you really have to get that introspection um, very uh, clear in your mind as to who you are and what you're for yeah yes it's so important and i like the fact that actually both of our books are in alignment that way i also have your book <laughs> and it, it, it's good because again people are not leading individuals for their own sake they're most often leading organizations and well mm -hmm. as well and to be the most effective leader you need to think of it not just in a linear way but in a more expansive way because that's how change is executed over time across industries across um the countries, however you look at it, that change reverberates um, not just on an individual scale, but on a grand scale. And so I love uh, your book about going beyond because it teaches organizations as a whole to embrace that perspective. Because sometimes we forget that leaders, again, aren't leading for their own sake, but there's a bigger thing here at stake. And that's the organizational um, outcomes. And, that, and that's really in terms of excellence is, is taking it one step further and saying, look, you know, what are you for? Why are you a leader? What are you looking for? And, and being poised for excellence goes beyond your individual performance uh, in your role, in your doing, as it were, into your individual performance as a manager, as an enabler, as a leader. Um, and I love that. And, and the last little bit of this section of the book, um, you call for people to uh, or you, you talk about visionary leaders eliminating the box. Talk to me a little bit about that. <laughs> yes, that's a concept that really resonates with me both personally and because so many times we feel like we have to operate in the constructs that have been laid out by society, by former bosses, by our parents, by other kinds of norms, things that really don't allow you to expand, to be creative, to do the best possible job that you can in your world and also outside of your world. And so this chapter really forces you to think beyond, to remove those shackles, those mental shackles that have operated to give you what you believe have been guidance and some of that guidance is good it's not all bad but to really expand your impact you have to be able to create from scratch if you will it's like going to the drawing board and then removing that board altogether and so no matter what that influence is no matter what it looks like this chapter really calls on you really demands you to eliminate those shackles and start from tabula rasa and trust yourself and create something that never was before. And there's a concept actually in early, in the early part of the book, I think it's in chapter one called Searchlight Intelligence. And that's a concept that really resonates with this particular chapter because it says that leaders are able to see things that other people don't see and to create where there was nothing there before. And so being a visionary leader requires you to apply those concepts on a larger scale to create that impact. And so that's where you get people who create these wonderful constructs in artificial intelligence, in technology, and expansive education that people just thought, oh my God, we would have never thought that this was possible. Well, eliminating the box and using searchlight intelligence really allows leaders to create the extraordinary so that our worlds, our lives, our relationships can be their very best. 
just picking up on that a, a little bit more, you, you're, you're taking them now into cultivating that skill set through what you call disruptive paradigm shifts. Yes, because oftentimes when you're looking at change, it's not something that most people are comfortable with. Change can be difficult. Change gets people out of their norm, which can be very comfortable. I get it. <laughs> we all like the familiar. We like the rotation. We know what to do. We know what's coming. But when you are changing what has always been, you can also be met with a little bit of pushback. And so again, to really reverberate and really create that kind of impact that's lasting, that can really create the kind of outcomes that we're looking for in the leadership paradigm, you have to be able to change the way you think, turn it on its head even, and look at things as if they weren't, look at them from sometimes a way that we call the devil's advocate, <laughs> and just ask yourself some hard questions and see you know, if I looked at it this way, if I brought these variables in there, would this change what we're looking to do? Could it make a bigger impact? And so I like it because I've always sort of challenged myself to to embrace these kind of concepts, things that people normally aren't accustomed to, that they normally give pushback to. For example, using fear as an ally, which is a chapter in the disruptive paradigm shifts. Yeah. Because most people feel that you know, fear is something negative, it's something to be shunned away from, but fear is really just a powerful indicator. It's showing you, for example, that if you have a deadline due and you become afraid as you're approaching that deadline, that perhaps you're not prepared as you need to be to execute, whether it's a public speaking engagement, a client engagement, something that you need to write, that you need to step back and prepare. Once you prepare, fear will probably dissipate. So it can be a very powerful indicator. It doesn't have to be something that dismantles you, that, that uh, makes you fall down and that destroys you, which is a lot of the time the way we look at fear, we let it consume us and then it changes our trajectory. So again, another way of looking at something that we always knew existed, but that empowers us to, us to take new steps and strategies to, to achieve a goal. And, and of course, as, 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 you, as you tackle that fear, so your risk of failure reduces and your potential for success increases. So, yes. um, you know, it, 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 it's logical, it makes sense, but actually what I love about your book is within each chapter and, and all the way through the book, you, you ask little journal questions, you get people to really think about ways in which they themselves can bring it alive and go back the next day having read a chapter or read a couple of chapters and picked up on some core strategies they can adapt to actually, mm -hmm. uh, to actually make a difference themselves. It, it, it is a, it, it's, whilst you're reading the book, you are learning. Yes. And you're being, you're giving people the opportunity to take their learning into the performance sphere. Yeah. Yes. And that, yeah. Was that a very deliberate tactic in the way you constructed the book? Absolutely. I thought that while prose is great and theories and even anecdotes are all an important part of the learning process, I really wanted the reader to be empowered to take charge of their leadership experience. And I thought one of the most useful ways to do that is to get them busy beyond just reading about my thoughts about leadership or the particular principle or even an example that sort of shows up in everyday life and what that looks like. But for them, again, to take that introspective look and say, hey, 
wait a minute, how does this principle show up in my life? What am I doing? What am I not doing that's either hindering or helping my ability to lead in this particular way? And then even the leadership challenge allows them to go out into reality and apply some of those principles, the strategies, maybe take some of the insight that they came across during the journal questions and apply that in a very real way and walk away with something tangible. And then they're on their way to mastery because mastery for us, and you and I, I know we agree about on this. It's a <laughs> I love this. It is a commitment that we make to ourselves on a daily basis. It's not something that happens overnight. We have to recommit every day and follow through. And that's what I love about learning. It is an entire lifelong process. Absolutely. And, and it's just going beyond that unconscious competence, you know, um, into, you know, the, the, the mastery and the artist uh, on top of the whole process. So, you know, eventually people don't realize you've just read the book. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. So the more, the more they go away, the more they put these things into, into practice, you know, the more likely it is to be natural and, and, and to become part of them, um, which, which I also like. You don't shy away from, from the sort of ethics and the, uh, uh, the need to deal with things like workplace bullies and, uh, and to yeah. adapt um, what, what you referred to, I think, as um, value-based service to others. Yes. Yes, because when we think about leadership, of course, again, one of the fundamental principles I say is that leadership is grounded in service to self because we do have to develop ourselves before we even think about developing others. But it's very much about serving. It's very much about serving. And so where a lot of people get it wrong, when they think about leadership, they think about it being a top heavy concept that you're in the C-suite and everyone's looking at you and you're sort of popping your collar, <laughs> walking around in the boardroom. And while some of leadership may look that way, the best part of it's the best parts of leadership you don't see, you don't really conceptualize in that way. And so when we think about service, we think about humility, we think about being there for someone who can't really be there for themselves, a concept that really sort of I embraced a lot as a lawyer because we are the mouthpiece for the client in the court in the court and we are really there maneuvering and moving and shaking for the client in their best interest we are really serving them at a very high level and so leaders who look at a concept like eliminating work workplace bullying and really being able to address that when you see someone who is suffering and it may not be the person you think it may not be the person who is considered low on the totem pole it may be someone very high up who is very stressed out but they may have been threatened <laughs> their job may have been threatened they may be under duress for a certain reason that is a very high level uh, bullying that takes place certainly in the professional sphere that goes beyond what we thought we, we eliminated you know way back in high school or even elementary school and so I like for leaders to take on that role to put on that cape and to look out for people who no, normally don't have the capacity to really perform at the level that they could without someone else sort of stepping in and so service from A to Z is an integral part of leadership uh, absolutely and you know you think back in your life and you think well when you were first given a management role or a leadership role uh mm -hmm. kind of like official um yeah the mistakes the mistakes you made at that mm. i i can look back and you know i feel very sorry for people uh that i was managing in those days because 
you made a lot of mistakes, or I made a lot of mistakes. Yeah. Uh, but I think one of the great things, as you say in the book, is, is it is about learning, it is about lifelong learning, and eventually, eventually, you know, if you're doing things for the right reasons in the right way, then, you know, happily a lot of people can forgive you uh, smaller errors and, and hopefully um, you learn to, to provide that service uh, in, a, in a really positive way. Um, have you heard of the chap called Stan Slap? Uh, many years ago, I don't, I don't remember quite how many years ago, but he changed my my perception of the way you lead and the way you manage impacts other people. When he he identified and pointed out to me that you know we spend a far greater percentage of our time being at thinking about going to and from work than anything else, and half yeah. and half of anything else is sleeping. And he, he just made, he used the phrase, welcome to your personal world. A little phrase we use here is, you know, your workplace is your world. Equally, everybody else's workplace is their world. And, and if you're going to set out to help everybody enjoy their world, then, then you can't manage it you know, in ways that, uh, that, are, that are negative, that are going to impact people's lives in a bad way. You really have to look at look at that workplace as a place where a positive energy can really transform performance and it's, yes. and it's because you want it to <laughs> and I, that comes through um, from a number of the, the little journals and, and uh, um, leadership challenges that you set out in the book yes i, I think that I, I absolutely agree. We spend more time here than we spend anywhere else. And, you know, it's one reason why sometimes when that environment is not as positive, people internalize that and then they make other decisions. I know even, you know, in, in my profession as an attorney, lots of lawyers have become entirely stressed out and made bad decisions about their personal lives, even up to and including taking their own lives because of those environments have really poured into them in a way that has been very negative and they've been not able to really handle that because it's been their entire life. So I really think that it's important for whatever those interval, whatever those resources can be that we can utilize to make that environment its very best, welcoming, wholesome for the individuals is the best thing that we can do, not just for them, but also for ourselves because we're an ecosystem. And so that energy continues to feed off um, day in and day out. Yeah. I, we, we, we talk to so many people, particularly in our world of um, people support, that, that just have no time. Their diaries are absolutely chock-a-full and you have a lovely little phrase in here saying no and owning it <laughs> because they don't have to be at every single one of those meetings <laughs> yeah it's it's um it's interesting you know demands are made requests are made and i think trying to be helpful is, is sometimes what also leads us on, on a path towards self-destruction because we want people to like us. We want to be helpful. We want to be able to help other people complete their projects. But sometimes no is just a good thing to say and to do for self-preservation. Even if you might be able to do it, sometimes you need to step away from a project. I often look at it like this. 
no matter what your skill set and, and availability may be for a particular request, there's probably also someone else, maybe different skill sets that could get on board and help move it forward. And so I think it's important for us to step away from the belief that it couldn't be done without me involved. Of course it can't, you know, and it can be done well. <laughs> so, so say no and own that. Don't apologize for it, don't agonize over it, and then go on to the next thing. I, 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 you know, I couldn't agree more. And you know, in a in a funny sort of way, we had a little soundtrack behind you there of emergency services going somewhere in Washington D.C. and and you know, oh, getting yeah. away from believing that you are the ultimate emergency service. that have to be everywhere to make sure everything works properly. Yeah. <laughs> we can just yeah. lose that right. mindset, step into the uh, the other mindset you reflect on in the book. Then, then we're going to be taking people a long way forward. Um, Karima, I thought this yes. was a fantastic book. It, it, it's, a, it's a great addition uh, to the uh, literature surrounding leadership. Uh, and um, I'm going to be recommending it to everybody I see. Karima, thank you so much. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to working with you going forward. Thank you for this great opportunity to help uh, share my work uh, around the globe, since your contacts are everywhere. And I look forward to sharing your work as well. Fantastic. Thank you for listening to episode 40 of the People and Flow podcast. If you would like to know more about the topics discussed, click on the links in the description and tune in for the next episode. Thank you for listening.